preliminary study of anti-Semitism. Um, and we were in New York last night to kick off the conference. And I think we started off with a very um, good evening. Um, the issues that we discussed in, in, in general, just to sum up very quickly, is how the issues of uh, the, the, the domestic situation in Iran with regard to human rights and some of the issues that are taking place within Iranian society, how's that affecting external relations vis-a-vis -vis Iran in the region and internationally. And from the speakers last night, uh, Mrs. Carr was speaking about the domestic situation, uh, the political situation in Iran and human rights in the region. Erwin Kotler also spoke about incitement to genocide from a legal perspective. And Pro Professor Manashri also spoke about the domestic situation in Iran and the need for reform. And as, as Professor Manashri said, there's two trains leaving the station. One is of, of social reform and the other is of the nuclear program and the nuclear weapons program of the current government, the current regime, and how these issues are very worrying and ties into the mandate, obviously, of a research center doing work on anti-Semitism, but not just on anti-Semitism, notions of otherness, the role of minorities in society. So this is a, an area that has profound implications for Iranians and the Iranian society internally, and also it has profound implications with regard to the region, um, and certainly vis-a-vis -vis the situation with Israel. Israel, after all, is the only country in the Middle East in which non-Muslims have gained self-control or, or have gained self-determination on land in the Middle East. And with a regime that has certainly, to say the least, difficulties of accepting the other or accepting difference, this is perhaps a deep ideological issue in question, a profound implications. So today we, we have the privilege of having really leading experts from various fields from the, the sort of sociology and the domestic human rights situation within Iran. We have people who are internationally known experts on strategic and ideological issues and we also have some uh, leading legal scholars to look at the implications of these questions. So. I welcome you, and it's, uh, it's an honor to have the speakers, and an honor to have those of you who are interested here with us today. There's going to be a small change in the uh, program, so we'll, we're starting late, but uh, we'll sort of open things up a bit. Professor Menashe will go at, toward, at the last session, because we had a cancellation. Professor Halberstrom uh, will not be here, so we'll sort of free up this space uh, this morning um, to deal with the question of the Iranian regime and human rights. So the first speaker will be Professor Hushain Amaramadi, who's a professor of urban planning and uh, policy development at Rutgers University. He's also the director of the Center for Middle East Studies at Rutgers. And Professor Amaramadi, excuse me, um, is also the founder and president of the American Iranian Council and the founder of the Center for Iranian Research and Analysis and a president of the Caspian Association. So he's well versed in these issues. And sitting next to him is uh, Mrs. Carr. Mrs. Carr is, as those who were here with us last night, uh, I refer to her 
as a hero of human rights, and Professor Owen Cutler also echoed those sentiments. Um, so uh, Mrs. Carr is a leading human rights advocate uh, in the Iranian society and a women's rights activist and advocate. In 2001, she was convicted uh, for charges acting against national security and disseminating propaganda against the Islamic regime. She was a graduate <coughs> fellow at Harvard University and was based at the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at Harvard's John Kennedy School of Government. In 2002, she received the National Endowment for Democracy Award presented by Laura Bush. So it's really an honor to have you both here. And also joining is Andrew Apostolou. He's a senior program manager for Iran at the Freedom House. Freedom House is an independent, non-governmental organization that supports the expansion of notions of freedom in the world. So, uh, and so starting off, uh, Professor Amarat Mahdi will speak on issues of Iran power structure and implications for democratic change. Thank you, Mrs. Mahdi. Uh, it's a pleasure uh, to speak at this very distinguished panel, uh, and good morning. Uh, after 10 years, uh, two months ago, I went to, back to Iran, uh, took a close look at the, at the country for a month, and uh, those of you who follow the Persian uh, uh, story of my trip to Iran, it's very fascinating, although I was uh, uh, invited, not invited, I shouldn't say invited, although I was sponsored uh, for the trip uh, by the Iran's president. Uh, the right wing in the country made a mess out of, the, out of that very, the very process. The Khan actually still continues to question uh, the government's uh, sponsorship of that trip and, uh, uh, and basically argues that Hussein is a spy of the US. And, and uh, he also is a person that is trying to overthrow the regime, and a person of that nature should not be in the country. Well, uh, obviously, I'm neither a spy nor I'm after regime change. I've never been, and I don't believe in regime change. I don't believe in the spying. I think they all are, in a way, in one way or another, a spy, because we academics talk, and we go and do research and, and write, and let the other people know. Except that our, uh, our business is a completely different business, a legitimate business, and we are the conscious of the societies that we uh, come from or we work with. Uh, so uh, with that uh, introduction, I just want to uh, put you at rest regarding uh, who I am and uh, what it is that I have been doing here or back in Europe. Uh, the subject of today's talk is uh, the power structure of the country, Iran that is, and the implications for, uh, for change, democratic change that is. Uh, and also I will add to that, still add to that power structure stuff a little bit uh, about my observation and where that, that Iran could go in the near future if a uh, status quo was to be maintained in terms of the relation with the U.S. and Israel and so on. Uh, the structure of power in Iran is a subject that most of you probably uh, realize is very understudied. Many of us has, over the last uh, half and the last uh, 30 years, focused on Islam 
and Iran's foreign policy. These have been the two key uh, subjects. And then the third added to that was obviously the issues of human rights and democracy and so on. Uh, but one thing that we haven't done uh, work on, particularly uh, in some detail, is how the system is structured, and who speaks for what, and who really, uh, uh, what are the relationships, what are the networks. Uh, first, uh, the first uh, point I wanted to make is this, that Iran does have a power structure, and that's very important. Iran is very different from many of the Arab countries who don't even have a power structure. That is, a structure of power that you could say, who is who in the country? Whether that is working or not is different. You know, for example, you know, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, uh, Bahrain, or any of the other st uh, states in the region, you hardly find a structure of power in place. That is not the case with Iran. Iran does have a power structure in place. That power structure is in place in two, uh, two ways. One, of course, Iran has a constitution that defines in some detail who is who and what are uh, to be done by, by whom. That constitution has been obviously changed at, uh, at least twice, but the bottom line remains that that constitution includes a set of what I call formal uh, uh, institutions, legal formal institutions that are Elected and unelected. The formal legal institutions that are elected, like for example the presidency, the parliament, the assembly of experts, is right all in place in the constitution. Now, the institutions that are unelected are also in place in the constitution. The House of Leadership, the Bali of Paris, okay, which is indirectly elected, but is not directly elected by the people. And the Guardian Council, for example, the Expediency Council, and some of the other uh, very powerful institutions. Now, aside from this formal, pop, you know, that is the formal elected and unelected institutions, you also have next to it another set of institutions that I call real and unreal, or you could say real, real powers and sort of like hidden powers. Real, real power and, and, and what that means is that there are power out there that necessarily do not correspond to the formal structure of the power. Based on individuals, certain institutions, some we know about, others we don't know. Uh, so you always have to think in terms of the, uh, a country that has a power structure built into the institution, in, 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 the, in the constitution, but also another parallel, sort of like a, a hidden, non-written constitution, if you will, that, that includes other powers that at times do correspond, but also most of the time do not even correspond with the way the constitution has explained who should be doing what. So this is a, a very important uh, uh, thing to, you know, the consideration to, to have in mind. Most of the time, for example, there are institutions, individuals that exercise powers that are not, are not either in the constitution or they are not supposed to have that power. Now, as just like in this society, 
Iran is Iran is changing, but at the same time remaining uh, and sort of like continuing. With the, so the continuity and change is, is, a, is a good thing in Iran. But the key issue here to understand is the following: from the very first day that Islamic Republic was put together, and the first day, the first day that the constitution was put together, there was one thing in the mind of the leaders of that revolution. That the people wrote the constitution, and that is, how do they reconcile Islam with democracy, or Islam with a popular will, religion, and the popular? Islamic Republic. How do you bring Islam and the republicanism into one complex? The constitution, from the beginning, from the beginning to the end, is a struggle over this relationship. That how do you how do you maintain a theocracy that also gives people you know a room to play? Well obviously obviously uh, Islam religion comes from the God and certainly according to the theocracy cannot be subordinate to the people. People are always subordinate to the God. So, at the end of the day, the people will have to follow what the God would say. The religion would say, and its representative, which is the Bali of Tahir. In this particular case, the unelected officials. The key here is that unelected officials represent the Islamic side. Supposedly, the elected institutions represent the people's side. So there is a struggle between the people and Islam here, and that is the unelected and unelected. Elected, representing people, the republic, unelected, okay, Islam, representing the God and so on. That struggle continues, and still they are trying to find a way to reconcile Islam and democracy. Well, the bottom line so far is that Islam may be compatible with some level of democracy, that maybe free elections, but it is certainly not compatible with liberal democracy. Liberal democracy. It is certainly not compatible with a lot of what human rights, universal declaration of human rights would, would dictate. So there is a problem out there. And I think this problem, in a way, uh, is, 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 in, is built into any religion. The problem with Iran is that religion is the government. So therefore, it's, it's a struggle with, with the popular will is more, uh, 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 more at a practical level than at theoretical. It is not a theoretical issue in Iran as it is like today in Christianity or in Judaism. So it's something out there uh, between people and, 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 its, and the religion. The Iranian political structure is certainly not vertical. It is largely horizontal. It's a, a tree like a big, with a big trunk with a lot of branches. Falling is a, a falling tree. And I call it a millipede. The millipede is just like you know, a, a trunk and then a lot of you know, little feet around. There are feet here and there. So, Although the Valley of Paris is a little bit above, and it does have a head out there, but 
broadly speaking, the system is flat. And that is, there are so many centers of power, thousands of feet around, that each of which do have something to say. And therefore, it has become extremely difficult to coordinate among all these little centers. This comes directly from the nature of the Shia hierarchy itself. The Shia hierarchy is a flat hierarchy. You know, there are the patches of powers here and there, with this Ayatollah having this many people around him, and that Ayatollah having that on it around them, and then they could coordinate between themselves, but hardly one Ayatollah is very high above the other Ayatollah. Now, this is very different from the structure that Iran had, the power structure that Iran had under the Shah. Under the Shah, you had a very, very vertical system of power structure. You had the Shah at the very, very top of the hierarchy, and then somehow everybody would fall down all the way to the bottom. So that is not the way Iran is now structured. The second thing is, in, in, in relation to this, is that in Iran, the power structure is built around, around functions as opposed to territory. That is to say, but in a federal system, in the US, for example, it is a territory, it's a state that is the unit of power. In Iran, it is the sectors, it is the functions, the ministries that are the unit of power within the system. That is, ministers are more important than governments are. And the power comes from the, from the top in Tehran, okay, to the villages, although even then, Tehran is powerful not because it is a big city or it is a capital city, but because it is the seat of this, all these ministers, all these functions. So it is the function, not territory, that defines Iran. And that's very important to understand because the, this argument about the, the ethnic movements and so on misunderstand how Iran operates okay, uh, in, in terms of the, the, the way the power is, uh, is put together. Another important development in Iran to consider is that the Islamic Republic started as a, as a system with what I call soft power. It was the legitimacy of the system, it was the revolutionary legitimacy, the religious legitimacy of the system that really was the base of the power, the source of the power. Over time, that legitimacy has largely, has largely been reduced and increasingly replaced by what I call hard power. And as a result of this change from a soft power to a hard power, power base, that is, you have changed to have you see changes in two very important uh, areas in Iran in terms of the power relations. Clergy versus the security military forces. Increasingly, the, the very beginning it was the clergy that was, in, you know, was in, in, you know, basically uh, in command, let's put it that way. And it was clergy in command with legitimacy, with the soft power. Now, increasingly, as the hard power has become more important than the soft power for the regime, the clergy has been increasingly replaced by military security forces who understand the language of hard power more than the soft power to begin with. So the clergy are losing to non-clergies, and the civilians losing increasingly more to the military security people. Another development to, to, uh, to watch is that the Islamic Republic, as a theocracy, has failed to produce theocrats. Generationally speaking, 
theocracy, the Islamic theocracy has not produced the theocrats that would, that would really make the system uh, move forward. So you have a system, a theocracy without theocrat. And that's very important. Only few uh, you know, religious leaders have been produced. The rest are largely, if there is any, it would be in the military other areas. The another important development is because of all this, there's a diffusion of power. And here is the key uh, concept that I wanted to share with you before I end. When we go to Iran, I went to Iran and looked very carefully to see what's really actually happening, bottom line. I saw this, that uh, a society with a dynamic social base, a country that is moving forward, particularly in terms of the education of its young people, the aspiration of its young people, the expectation of its young people, as a, a country that really is facing a revolution of expectations, tremendous revolution of expectations. That, in one hand, in the people's side. But next to that is the power structure that I was speaking about, the political society, as opposed to the, uh, the so-called civil society that is growing. And again, a civil society, I don't mean civil society in a traditional way, I mean the social base of the society, the people, and so on. But the, the political society, as opposed to the social base, has remained stagnant. Largely stagnant, and therefore you have a tremendous gap developing between the social base and the superstructure. Of, of power. And this and this has led to two important developments. And I think that is it, and this is the future. One, the system increasingly to respond to this rising expectation have begun thinking in terms of what to do, and under that thinking about what to do led to factionalism. The, you have uh, the reformists, you have the principalists, and then you have principalists number one, two, three, four, and then you have reformists number one, two, three, four, five, until 18. So you have a political society that is very much into pieces. And everybody in the political society thinks that he, it has a better, or he or she has a better idea how to uh, resolve the problem. The problem is none of them do. And as a result, they have all failed to incorporate, to melt into themselves the political, the social base. That is, the political society was trying to melt the social base into itself, has indeed failed, and the reverse is happening. And this is the key. That I believe that because of this factionalism and the inability, the mismanagement of the political society in dealing with the demands and expectations of the social base, that superstructure, that factions are being increasingly melted into the social base. So you have, uh, I, would, I would suppose in the, in the next 10, 5, 10 years, if everything goes the way it is, you will have, you don't have any of these factions. Now what is emerging is that as this social, this, this uh, factions melt into the social base, I believe a new reorganization of political society is emerging in the country. But this time, this reorganization is not based on religion, is not based on factions or whether I have, a, I have a better Islam than you do or so on. It is based on two ideas. One, a rejection of factionalism toward, toward a concept of national uh, sort of get together. The national, I don't mean nationalism, I mean, I mean uh, sort of like, uh, you know, non-factional, I mean, the country as a whole, uh, nationwide, that is to say. So one, you would, you would see 
uh, organizations developed that are increasingly nationwide in scope. And this organization could be coalitions, there could be even parties. And second, I believe that this development will be centered around certain ideas. And I think the three ideas that are emerging in Iran of the future, of the, the next few years, that are very critical. One, relation with the outside world, US and Israel is the center of that problem. Second, democracy, but the bottom line in democracy or human rights really is free elections, free and fair elections, as opposed to democracy, human rights as a general concept. And finally, it is the economy. It is the economy, so there are, and of course an economy that will deal with the young people in terms of both job and reduction of poverty. So you have a, a country that is emerging, a poverty that is emerging soon that will have a national agenda, a national agenda with a national power structure or, or, or structure of, of poverty that will focus on these three issues. I believe economy will be the center of this, uh, this new uh, thinking, and, that, and then U.S. relation with the U.S. or outside, and the free elections will be seen as factors that will have to be resolved in favor of an economic, uh, uh, of an economic uh, sort of growth and reduction of poverty and increasing social welfare and so on. Now, if I am right, that the power structure is building into the social base and that the social base is rethinking itself in terms of the, of the structure of the power and the, the, the new polity. If I, if I am right that the national projects that the, the society is trying to define are in relation with the US and Israel as well as, as, well as the free elections and not democracy and human rights, I mean free elections. As well as the as well as the uh, the economy, I think the next next stage in this in, uh, in the struggle in Iran would be completely different from what we have so far seen. And I believe the leaders, political leaders, and uh, social leaders, academics, who will put some time, spend some time in reformulating or formulating this particular uh, emerging trend and coming with ideas about, for example, how to resolve U.S. relations, how to mitigate tension with Israel, how to bring about free elections as opposed to democracy, which is the first step in a long, in a long ladder, uh, and then how to put the economy together, those people are going to be governing that country. But then again, it's all this all depends on if that society will continue uh, in its peaceful path and that it will not in involve into any confrontation, military confrontation between, uh, you know, with the outside forces, whoever the outside forces. I believe if that happens, if, the, if, any, if, if there was to be a, uh, a, a military confrontation of any sort with, the, with Iran, I think not only all of this will go, I believe you will have almost everything that is in place will disappear. I believe the standard Republic uh, will reorganize itself in a completely different way, and obviously, unfortunately, I will have said in a way that none of us wish to see. Thank you very much. Well, just to let you know, after the uh, two other talks, we'll have time for questions and answers. Mrs. Carter is going to speak on the right situation in Europe. Hi, everybody.
before I start to say one or two words to picture of Professor Amir Abedi. One is Vilayat Fakir, that now uh, we are under this political system, is just one reading of Shia. And there is no agreement between Shia clergies about this kind of political system. And uh, the second is, that's correct. We do have two kinds of institutions in our uh, government in Iraq, uh, elected and selected institutions. But unfortunately, I have to say, all elected institutions are under control by selected institutions. So we cannot say that uh, we have access to some kind of democracy, not perfect democracy, even some kind of democracy, we cannot say that uh, uh, we do have in Iran and in this legal system. But something that is related with human rights, I have to say uh, there are two obstacles. Our legal system, in theory, is not uh, accepted the human rights principles. And in practice, they don't mind about that. And they say, sometimes very clear, they say that we don't have uh, human rights standards like human rights standards that are written in uh, human rights international document. Uh, and when uh, we criticize, for example, about stoning, uh, somebody who is the head of the human rights center in judiciary system, he says that uh, that's not violation. That's punishment. And when something is punishment, it's not a violation. So we are facing with this view in our uh, legal system. And that's the reason if uh, sometimes uh, we do have some facilities or facilities in our legal system uh, for promoting human rights, uh, this kind of view they stopped uh, the judiciary system or some part of judiciary system uh, to work on that. On Islamic Republic Constitution, you can find, I think, about 17 articles. 17 articles uh, which uh, which are according human rights standards, but most of them, and I can say all of them except one, uh, it's conditional. And when uh, they say that uh, uh, freedom of speech uh, is accepted, or freedom of gathering is accepted, or freedom for having independent political system is accepted, 
immediately you can find something in the article that is conditional. And in these articles they say if if they do according Islamic or Sharia principles. But in our legal system we don't have any clear definition of Islamic principle, of Sharia principle. And that's the reason anybody who comes on power, they can uh, they can work by these uh, articles for their personal benefits or gang benefits or I don't know fractional benefits and anyway uh, they don't mind about human rights and uh, human rights that uh, this constitution uh, is talking about that but it's very so, I want to explain that this legal system in theory and in practice cannot be according human rights principles. In theory, in our legal system, and in practice, because the view that uh, I tried uh, to explain uh, about that to you, uh, the people uh, who have the reading of Islam and this reading is against human rights. Despite of that, Iranian government, they signed some very important international human rights document and uh, they have uh, to work according these international uh, human rights documents. Uh, as a member of the United Nations, the Iranian government is obliged to follow rules and regulations created based on the international human rights law. Uh, the Iranian government has arrived at a positive vote for the ratified 1948 Human Rights Declaration, approving the contents of the human rights legislation. Therefore, the Iranian government has accepted the human rights law as interpreted by the declaration and the treaty. Uh, many laws regarding women in Iranian laws and regarding non-Muslims in Iranian laws uh, are not compatible with international standards. Accordingly, Iranian laws are not in accordance with the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Culture Rights, ICESCR. Accordingly, Iranian laws are not in accordance with the International Covenant of Civil and Political Rights, ICCPR. The civil and political international covenant of the 1966 was ratified by Iranian legislators. Accordingly, Iranian laws are not in accordance with the Convention on the Rights of the Child, CRC. The Convention on the Rights of the Child was ratified by Iranian legislators after the Islamic Revolution.
In some days, Article 9 of Iranian civil laws is in conformity with those segments of international classes that are based on Iran's collaboration with other governments. Therefore, Iran's indifference to principles of international human rights and the repeated violation committed in the legislative and judiciary spheres uh, and the fact that inter-intral uh, laws requiring enforcement are not respected. Therefore, from the uh, uh, standpoint of a citizen, this government is a law-breaker and thus cannot order its citizens to abide by the law. That's something that is very important and the government of President Khatami they were insisting on that rule of law and they uh, asked the government uh, for that but unfortunately as you know uh, the radical uh, people in that political system they didn't tolerate and uh, reform was the end and we couldn't get any other uh, results from reform and now we are facing with a political system that all parts all part of this political system is in the hand of very, very radical people. And somebody who are moderate, uh, they are silent in this political system and they don't have uh, right to talk about something. Just something that is happening now is in uh, Usul Garayan. Uh, uh, it means very radical, uh, revolutionary, and uh, Muslim people who now are on power. Now, uh, something is beginning that I think it would be good for future of Iran. As you know, a big part of parliament now is in their hands, and uh, now they are fighting with each other. Some part of them are supporting Ahmadinejad, and some part of them are uh, 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 are uh, opposing Ahmadinejad, and they are criticizing Ahmadinejad policy, especially in economic policy. And I think this is very important for uh, future of um, political of era, because this is a very new thing. We are facing with uh, some articles against uh, human rights in Iraq. These articles are against equality between men and women, uh, equality between Muslim and non-Muslim, uh, rights for dissidents, uh, having rights for uh, register uh, independent uh, uh, organization, uh, the lack of uh, permission for having uh, uh, independent political system and uh, 
most important thing is there is no freedom of speech. And that's something that is obstacle and most important obstacle for human rights activists and women rights activists and civil society activists in Iran for talking and criticizing uh, about the policy of government in uh, internal policy and in uh, foreign policy. Uh, now something that is um, obstacle for promoting human rights in Iran and is it's coming from outside is all media all over the world they are focusing on nuclear and they don't focus on human rights situation in Iran. And this is something that I think some part of that government, they like that. Because they like nuclear would be on the center of attention of international community. And they don't like uh, international community uh, have sympathy uh, with victims of human rights uh, uh, activists and human rights activists and students of university. Uh, in Iran, and this is something that is coming from international community. And something that uh, is obstacle and is coming from international is because focusing on uh, nuclear and because there is no uh, normal relationship between Iran and the United States. Uh, anybody who wants to uh, criticize the government, they accuse them as somebody who is a spying for the United States or who is working with the United States uh, to have a military attack to Iran. And they accuse them as somebody who are working against national security, even women rights activists. What women rights activists say? They say that, okay, we need something like a right for divorce, equal right for divorce between men and women, equal uh, rights uh, for something like, uh, uh, something like uh, custody for children, and something like that, but they accuse them as somebody who are working against national national against national interest and sometimes they accuse them they are getting money from foreign countries and they stop them and they condemn them. Uh, this is something that is coming from outside and the government prefer uh, international community focus on uh, nuclear and they like to take time and to kill time for that, and they don't like uh, international community to get time uh, for working to promote human rights in Iran or having pressure on Iran for promoting about uh, women's rights and uh, uh, human rights uh, in Iran. Uh, 
Flooding, uh, flooding and uh, prison stances for women's rights activists uh, is something that every day, if you follow the news of Iran, you can find that. Uh, tortured students sentenced to prison, students of university, especially the last one, three one, uh, who condemned to be in prison after uh, many months uh, they uh, they've been in jail and they've been under uh, torture and uh, after that uh, they said that uh, they had confession under pressure this is something that is very new and something that is very important is according our legal system uh, attorney at law uh, they are very limited. Uh, sometimes uh, the judge can stop them uh, for uh, being with uh, somebody who uh, they arrest. And just they give them permission to be in the court, but not before the court. And that's why, and, and that's why that uh, somebody who is arrested uh, by then, they are very alone, and they can do uh, everything, uh, like torture, physically torture, or psychological torture, and nobody is there, and there is no witness for that. And after they get all confession, and sometimes it's not true, after that, they send uh, the case to the court, and uh, they give permission uh, that now you can hire a lawyer. And when lawyer and attorney comes to this case, everything is, you know, everything is over. And that person uh, said everything that probably is not true under pressure against himself, against his, herself, against uh, other people. And the end of some case is uh, showing in television, and they say that if I am talking about freedom, if I am talking about uh, uh, illegal moderation in this political system, everything is coming from the United States. And in television show, they say something like that. So in this situation, we cannot uh, be hopeful uh, we have something better than this just now we are uh, trying our best to go to all gathering when they invite us and talk about human rights and women's rights in Iran and ask people please help us in this case we know that nuclear is uh, on the center of your attention, but something that is in the center of attention of Iranian people is a better economic situation and better human rights situation. Now, by this political system and legal system, we do have technical problems. As Professor uh, mm, 
امیر احمدی
and he's speaking on the state of civil society in Europe. Well, thank you very much. And first of all, I'd like to say thank you to Charles Small and Lauren Clark for the organization putting this together. Um, I'm going to speak on the state of civil society in Iran. By civil society, I mean very simply the ability of citizens to organize freely and to associate uh, freely and to express themselves in an unfettered manner. And at Freedom House, we try and assist Iranian civil society. Um, I'm going to draw in this talk on the very good work that my colleagues in the Iran team at Freedom House Washington, D.C. do, and also the analysis people in New York do. Um, they put out three big reports. One is called Freedom of the Press, came out yesterday. The other one is Freedom in the World, it will come out in June. And then there's a report called Countries of Crossroads, uh, and that will appear in autumn of 2009. And the scores, because people like to use Freedom House work for various uh, economic analysis as well, the scores were actually published earlier in the year at the beginning. Now, as you probably know, the picture for civil society in Iran at the moment is rather bleak. Uh, we have a policy, I think, of state-led regression. And the state has multiple tactics to reverse what civil society development there has been in the past. However, rather than simply just say it's bleak and here's why, let me give you what I think is the counter-argument that is out there, and it's worth knowing what this is. Um, there are people who would argue you can come to the opposite conclusion. That actually, despite two and a half years of uh, the presidency of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, Iran still possesses the traits of a vibrant civil society, that there is still civil society development in Iran, that in some ways Iran is more developed than other Middle Eastern countries, although that's not saying terribly much. For example, women in Iran can vote, they're in parliament, they can drive cars. They can't do that in Saudi Arabia. You could also argue that in Iran, the results of elections are not strictly preordained. After all, in 1997, Hatami won a landslide victory despite clear evidence of massive ballot fraud against him. His supporters then swept the marginalists in 2000. He was re-elected in 2001. During the early years of his presidency, thousands of non-governmental organizations opened their doors. So you could argue that there were very promising signs uh, of civil society developing in Iran and that might be a potential for democratic change and that Iranians might be able to organize and choose their country's future. That's one argument that is made. Now what I'd argue, however, is that that promise has not come to fruition, and that quite the contrary, the country's reactionary forces, and I think the word conservative is a little bit too mild in this context, um, successfully thwarted any possibility that these promising civil society elements could in any way coalesce. And what the reactionary forces, I think, demonstrated repeatedly under Hatami is they could keep civil society in Iran atomized and ineffectual. And one of the ways they did this, um, in addition to the usual legal harassment, was outright violence with gangs of state-encouraged vigilantes who murdered dissident intellectuals. And Michael Rubin, who's here today, did a very good uh, publication for the Washington Institute on this, I think, it, um, overly obscure subject. It's something that really needs to be investigated much more. Um, and since Ahmadinejad took the presidency in 2005, these reactionary forces, with some success, um, have actually superseded this strategy of harassment and division with a new strategy that actually seeks to reverse civil society development in Iran and to replace genuine civil society with an Islamic alternative. Now, so-called Islamic civil society has actually long been the vision, you could argue, of the ruling class of the Islamic Republic, and there's a very good article in the Journal of Democracy in October 2007 by Ladan Buruman who argues that it's this vision of an Islamic civil society that Hatami himself was actually promoting. 
Um, under such an arrangement, what would happen would be that an NGO could exist if it was not deemed to be, um, in its activities and its aims, inconsistent with state ideology. Uh, I, I have a hunch that the likely preference of the ruling class would be that all NGOs would actually be government-organized NGOs, uh, and the acronym for that, as you know, is GONGO, uh, and uh, some of the not very former Soviet republics have been very good at that. Um, so if you interpret the current attack on civil society in Iran as being part of a fundamental regime proclivity towards a state-controlled and ideologically vetted notion of public association, then that, I think, explains what's happening in terms of the excuse that the states come up with, which is that we have to do this because the Americans are supporting civil society. Uh, and that, as I said, is an excuse. It's not actually a compelling explanation. So let's just quickly look at what, what I mean by the state-led regression. Well, as you know, uh, the, the, the fundamentals haven't changed. You know, women remain uh, less than second-class citizens. Uh, all female candidates were barred from running for the Assembly of Experts elections in December 2006, along with anybody who couldn't pass a regime-imposed set of exams in Islamic law. I suspect the President might have failed those as well. Um, we've also had uh, the use of violence against demonstrations and to break up strikes, the imprisonment of the leader of the Bus Workers Union. Um, there's continued use of revolutionary courts, which of course lack anything like due process to uh, repress activists and people suspected of activism. Religious minorities remain discriminated against. There is still no Sunni mosque openly operating in Tehran. Um, we have more Sunni mosques operating in Washington, D.C. Um, the regime repeatedly intrudes into Iranian private lives with so-called morality campaigns. In 2007, around 150,000 people were arrested, thousands were referred for trial, and thousands were forced to sign humiliating pledges to alter their behavior. Now, You'll often see in, in the press and media that the morality campaigns are reported as basically being about you know, closing down illegal parties, women covering the hair on their heads, and this sort of thing. It's actually more than that. And uh, as some of you may know, there have been instances in recent years of the regime executing gay men simply for being gay men. Um, as for the elections, well, there was an apparent setback for Ahmadinejad in the 2006 municipal elections and the Assembly of Expert elections. But the regime has since managed to successfully manipulate the electoral process, and that manipulation is structural, it's part of the process. And so the result is that while, yes, reformists do compete in Iranian elections, they just don't compete on a level playing field. Uh, and by international standards, the Islamic Republic has never held anything resembling, remotely resembling free and fair elections. And in fact, that structure of control that is inherent to the electoral process in Iran has been augmented with a very interesting uh, development in January 2007, which involves the revolutionary guards in the vetting process um, for elections. So it's, we're not just talking about an Islamic regime here, we're talking about a regime with a military component now. Um, now let's just talk quickly about the, some of the tactics of, of, of repression uh, that are used, and, and this is just a brief overview. Obviously, um, there's pseudo-legal harassment, uh, there's censorship, and there's outright violence and there's also the memory of previous violence, which is also always very important in these sorts of societies in these sorts of contexts. The fact that they may not be killing thousands of people at the moment, the fact that they did, and it's not acknowledged, that memory is very important. Um, so let me give you a, a few instances. Censorship, again, it's inherent in the system. 
The Ministry of Culture has to approve all publishing. There are some obvious taboo subjects, uh, questioning religion, women's rights, anti-government activities, certain aspects of the nuclear issue. Um, the Tehran Publishers Association recently uh, complained about this, <coughs> complained about the inconsistency and said that it's frequently seen that an issue that has resulted in a book being banned is abundant in another one that's published. So there's a system of censorship, but it's censorship that is inconsistent. I'll come in a minute to why it's inconsistent. Because um, I think that vagueness is actually deliberate. Uh, it's one of the ways in which the regime keeps people off balance. Uh, there was a recent Harvard study on the internet, as you know, which looked at the way in which the blogosphere is not entirely uh, closed down if it's reform as well. That could be to a degree of inefficiency and dysfunction. I mean, it happens. Um, but it's also a way, as I said, of, of keeping people on their toes. To give you an idea of the vagueness, uh, which means that you just don't know where the red line in, is in Iran, um, Article 500 of the Penal Code provides for um, anyone who undertakes any form of propaganda, a term that's undefined, against the state, will be sentenced to between three months and one year in prison. What on earth does that mean? Uh, another good example is Article 513, which criminalizes and insults religion. <coughs> I didn't define an insult to religion. Uh, again, uh, that's up to the state to define as, as, as and how they see fit. Although, What's interesting there is their definition of an insult to religion is um, clearly doesn't include the state. And just to give you, I think, a great example of this, um, uh, Hassan Rahimpour Azradi, who's a member of the Supreme Council for the Cultural Revolution, uh, that's a great, um, a great body to be a member of, um, said on Jan uh, July the 20th, 2007, that Christianity was a reeking corpse on which you have to constantly pour eau de cologne and perfume and wash it in order to keep it clean. I'm not aware that this gentleman is being prosecuted under Article 513. Um, and again, if you act against what's called national security, and again, that's a wonderfully vague term, uh, you can face uh, trial and imprisonment. And one of the ways in which you're harassed is that the regime imposes some really exorbitant bail demands. Uh, and again, here's an example of Mohammed Sadiq Kabulvad, who's an Iranian Kurd, who was arrested about 10 months ago for setting up the Committee for the Defense of Human Rights in Kurdistan, Iranian Kurdistan, and he's been imprisoned because his bail was set at around $150,000. And this is a country which, what, GDP per capita is about two, dollars $3,000? Um, and he spent, of those 10 months, four and a half months in solitary confinement. Uh, let me just quickly touch on the cases of the four Iranian Americans, I think this was very interesting, um, their imprisonment last year. Um, again, the, the regime excuse was, well, you know, involved with the civil society programs, possibly with the United States, there's something dodgy going on there. But I think actually, um, contrary to the contention that they pay a price for the alleged, for example, US refusal to talk to the Iranian regime and uh, the regime's paranoia, I think what's interesting about uh, these uh, four Iranian Americans is that certainly three of them were advocates, very open advocates of dialogue between Iran and the United States. And, the fourth, as you know, a journalist working for US government-funded radio station. So what I think the regime was indicating to us with their uh, imprisonment was um, that it opposes genuine, genuine civil society development and it opposes the very sort of dialogue that that civil society development entails. This wasn't about what the US is doing, it's about what Iranians could do if they had the chance. Uh, let me just talk quickly about the uh, the, the, that, as I said, that key element, that state of uncertainty. Yes, it comes from dysfunction in the regime. Yes, it comes from inefficiency. 
yes, there's a degree of the right hand and the left hand not knowing what the other is doing, but, but there, it's a deliberate aspect as well, I think, and why is it deliberate? Because, as you know, again, you just have to look at other uh, repressive and authoritarian states. Having people who jail people is a prerequisite of being an authoritarian state and terribly handy, but having people who will mentally jail themselves is even better, and it's not only a labor-saving device, but it, it's a technique that these regimes use. And I think this was wonderfully summed up just this week on April the 28th by the Minister of Culture. Uh, you probably saw this quote, Mohammed Hussein Safar Harandi, who, responding to the complaint of the Tehran Publishers Association that they don't know where they stand, said, this is what we ask publishers and writers. You are aware of the vetting code, so censor pages which are likely to create a dispute. That's the Minister of Culture saying very openly, you repress yourself, you censor yourself. And, of course, if you don't, the regime will do it for you. <coughs> so, what this means, unfortunately, is that Iranian civil society is under, under very deep threat and under very severe threat. This does not mean, let me be clear, that Iranians are not interested in basic freedoms. And it does not mean that the regime has successfully intimidated them and bought them off, as some people would argue. What it does mean, however, is that we should be supporting, I would argue, and that's my job, Iranian civil society to survive the threat and the attempt by the state to regress Iranian civil society. Thank you. Okay, so we'll have, I'll take about 15 minutes for Q&A, and then we'll have a brief coffee break after that. We'll, we'll be on schedule. There's sort of an extra 15 minutes built into the morning session, so we'll be okay. Does anybody have any questions or comments for the panel? Maybe somewhere on the program. Are more educated, 
uh, a society is quite modern. Iran is not a traditional, backward, theocratic society. As I said, the social base of the society is very dynamic, forward-looking, very expecting, progressive, global, and so on. But the superstructure of politics is the problem. Now, the good news is that the, the superstructure hasn't really been able to impose in the last analysis as well on the, on the general society. The society is going its own way. What has happened, however, that the society is playing a game with, this, with the political society to survive. That is, it has two sort of existence. In the one hand, it has this hidden existence of what really it wants to become, that like everybody drinks alcohol in most places in Tehran, as they used to do. But, yeah, no, but, but at the same time, you don't see that served in the, the restaurants, you know, in the, in the hotels. Again, but the point here is, yes, there are people in the political society that are very backward, although not everybody, I would say. The political society does also have the modern thinking people, looking uh, people. But the civil society certainly, uh, and I don't say civil society because I think there is a misunderstanding of what that civil society means in Iran. I, so I, I like to call it the social base of the society as opposed to civil. I mean, talk with the people as opposed to any particular organization, any political political discourse, or, and so on. That is more likely. Uh, I think so, therefore, yes, uh, there are people uh, like uh, uh, like Z, you know, the Ayatollah Mesbahi who wanted to impose a, a theocracy that is 1,400 years old on the people, but at the end of the day, they really aren't able to do it. Okay, so you do have this tremendous uh, contradiction between the so-called tradition and modernity in Iran, Okay, and in an old age struggle, but that seems to me that over time the modernity is melting the tradition into itself. The civil society is melting the political society into itself, as opposed to the, the other way. Just a comment about that. Uh, they ignore radical theologies. They are living like the people in Western countries. But everything, because everything is criminal, they do that very secret. Everything. So we cannot say the majority of people, they are following radical clergy. But you are right. Radical clergy now are supporting Ahmadinejad and are supporting this view, because Ahmadinejad is symbol of one view in that political system. And they support Ahmadinejad, but it doesn't mean that uh, Iranian people, they follow these clergy. And we have some other clergy who are outside the political system. And they are not silent, because sometimes they are, uh, you know, criticizing the political system and sometimes censorship, and uh, they are arrested like secular people. And now, uh, somebody like Adia Pavel now is in prison, and he is a clergy who uh, is criticizing the uh, radical clergy all the time, and some other people like Yusuf Eshkabari, like Salizadeh, they lost their turban and their position. 
uh, as clergy, uh, because we do have a court, the name is the court, uh, particularly for clergies, and when they say something against the political system and the policy of political system, they arrest them. So when there is no freedom of speech, even clergies who want to a better interpretation of the law, I don't mean that very, you know, um, very good interpretation of Islam, but better interpretation of Islam, even they cannot work very hard in this case. Excuse me. We're going to take two quick questions. Professor Madashri and Boyd Fishler. Are you okay? <laughs> Uh, I think that this panel uh, has shown the complexity of Iranian politics in a, in a wonderful way, and uh, mainly with uh, different speakers looking at different aspects, uh, looking at the same picture, and they are both very knowledgeable, but each stresses something else in Iranian political system. Professor Amir Ahmadi stresses this, there is a power structure, and there is a constitution, and then we hear from his crowd that uh, there is a power structure, but the, sele the selected people are supervising the electing. And in fact, there is limiting the expression of public opinion. I think that's, a, that's a, the basic point in Iranian complexity, that, that, that the system is, 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 uh, doesn't allow a change. Now, there is a system, and then in fact, the, from the last, last video, a very interesting point that was doing somehow uh, not stress, but I think it's important that this regime knows how to use, uh, how to learn from its own experience. What they have done between the elections to the Council of Experts in December 2006 and the parliamentary elections shows that how brilliant they are and how should be they are around the country. But my specific question to uh, Professor Adi Akhali is that there has been recently in Iran, and uh, as a guest of Is there any new sense that you can make from Iran uh, from this trip that it was new to you or strengthened you to completely your views about Iran? What one can learn from <coughs> kind of visit to Iran, the new uh, understanding of, of the dynamics of Iranian society? Because as you mentioned, the dynamic society. Yeah. Well, first off, I wasn't really, I didn't go as a guest of the government. I paid my own ticket. I went, I paid my own hotel bills. Uh, and I, uh, so I also you sponsor. Well, that was a sponsorship. I mean, really support. I mean, basically, I felt that support. But that is because I couldn't, be, I couldn't go to Iran unless Ahmadinejad had told me, you know, in, in, in writing that you can come, and he had written to certain institutions that this guy can come and don't bother him. And that was really the extent of my uh, the sponsorship. Otherwise, I, I, came, I went to my own. Uh, now, the second, I believe it is. And let me put it this way, and this doesn't mean anything to anybody. I think Iranian studies, unfortunately, okay, is experiencing, uh, 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 I would say, uh, uh, the kind of, uh, the, the kind of uh, uh, understanding that, uh, that is problematic, to say the least. There was a time when an expert on Iran would speak the language that would be in, have visited the country, have left the country, left the country, knows the history of the country, had studied the culture. The, the last 20 some years, 
Iranian experts, quote-unquote, uh, have become people who have never seen the country, who don't speak the language, they have, uh, they have no idea what's going on. So we have created a myth, a myth of that country. So one reason it is so important to go to the country is to see the reality. I think the biggest problem is the reality. What I saw after 10 years, actually, I was surprised that many of what I had in mind was wrong. That I thought, just like many, that civil society is dead, that, the people, that there's a regime that has taken over everything, that there is factions all over, that the principalists are in place, that everything is just like that. It's not the case. I mean, you go, for example, I mean, I, I've been doing the election, and the, there are principalists, quote unquote, and the reformists running. So the people come, the, the candidates come to me, you know, because I was popular in my own town, they would come to me for support, and I would say, okay. Uh, who is this guy? My brother would say he calls himself a principalist. How about that guy? He calls himself a reformist. The people don't believe anymore that these guys are reformists or principalists. They really don't. That's extremely important to understand that, that the, the factionalism that you see, the principalists of number one and two, uh, all the principalists in the country are 300 people. All the reformists in the country are about 250 people. I said very openly, I said it in Tehran. They're not more than that. Iranian people are not reformists or principalists of number one or two or that kind of stuff. That does not mean that the Iranians don't want to that they reform, they don't want a democracy, they don't want a human rights. They do, but they don't put themselves into the categories that this political factions want them to be in. They refuse to be categorized as A, B, C. That's very important. What Iranians see, what you see in Iran is a society very dynamic that is melting the political society itself, is forcing the political society to listen. Although they may not have organization, they may not have a movement and so on. So I think the key thing to learn, okay, uh, and that's a very important question, is that uh, that the reality in Iran is very different from what we hear from outside. Again, that does not mean that that reality is more positive or more negative. It is different. At times, I have seen that, that reality more negative than I, I have thought here. And at times, I have also seen that reality more positive. But it is, it is different from the, the perception of Iran that emerges in the media in this country. For example, let me give you one example. I, I thought for example, Iran is a society where military security is, is in control. I went to Iran, I saw uh, the real, the one that is in control is not the military, it is the security. It is, it is the information ministry that is in control, not revolutionary guard. There's a lot of misunderstanding or a lot of hype about revolutionary guard in Iran. Even the part of the Revolutionary Guard that we think is in control, it actually is in control because it is in the, it's an intelligence. It is the intelligence, not the military, that is in control. That has been absolutely a surprise to me. Not that it didn't exist, not that they know there, but the extent of their control was a surprise. So, and the, 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 the extent of this tremendous hype about the Revolutionary Guard, you know, a surprise. I didn't see that to be such a huge presence in the country controlling everything. In fact, there's a lot of myth about the Revolutionary Guard. When you go to Iran, you will see. 
But the evolutionary God is not really I go to Iran, I can't go back. I'm sorry? Yeah. <laughs> I go to Iran, I cannot come back to tell you. That's a myth too. That's a myth too. I think you can go to Iran, I promise among all of these people that you go to Iran and return. You, you want to do it? You can pass. There is another myth, and the myth is that you cannot go to Iran and come back. Some of, some of us have that problem, but many <coughs> really don't, and even those of us who have the problem can resolve the problem. <laughs> well, very interesting point that you made on base. And I think you're absolutely right. And there's a very interesting paper that Steve Heidemann did called Savantin, where I used to work till last week. And I know this because I edited it. Lab. And uh, the Savant Center at Brookings, Stephen Heidemann, is now at USIP, he did a very interesting paper on, I think it was called Upgrading Authoritarianism. And he looked at Arab countries, but I mean, the same lessons could be applied to Iran and the way in which regimes have learned to adapt to civil society development, to control it, to channel it create their own regime NGOs, to um, take the edges off and it looks like maybe getting out of control. And there are very interesting indications that these regimes are, are actually deliberately learning from each other. And certainly Iran is coordinating with uh, other countries in the region, for sure, and the Iranian presence in terms of uh, intelligence people harassing dissidents in neighboring countries uh, is certainly happening, and we know that from our experience. Um, and I think another point I've made in addition to the vigilantes, uh, that Paris state element that needs to be looked at, I think another element that needs to be looked at is the role of war veterans. I mean, that could be the of war veterans. Um, as we know, in post-war Europe, uh, I say post-First World War Europe, war veterans in some countries played an extremely important, very negative role. And clearly, that class of war veterans is very important in the Iranian state at the moment. Uh, as for the role of the Revolutionary Guard, well, opinion lots and varies on that. Um, but clearly this organization and certain subsegments are very active, um, and not just active in Iran, it would appear that they're very active in Iraq as well as we've seen in recent years. Uh, so I wouldn't write the revolutionary guards off, but the very fact that, that now in the electoral law, they play a role in vetting candidates, and that, that is actually a very interesting and important development. So uh, Lloyd Fischler will have the last question, unfortunately, this session. And There'll be coffee, you can discuss over coffee and avoid quick questions. I'm just wondering how open or free is the Iranian economy? And if so, are there levels of corruption among the mullahs and the political class? And as a sideboard, how <coughs> controlled or regulated is the internet? There are two things about the Iranian economy you must understand. One, there is a formal Iranian economy. Everything that you have to understand Iran, you have to present it formal and informal. Politics, economics, and everything else. Iranian economy, particularly after the revolution, has developed a very large informal sector. A sector that is hidden to everybody, including the government. One surprise I have always had is that how come that the economy, with that the statistics that we see, survives and thrives? Well, the fact is, I don't know the number exactly, probably 50% of the Iranian economy is not reported anywhere. Think of like the bunyads, the foundations, they don't report to anybody, and they really are huge. I would say almost 20% of the economy is in, the, in, in, in that side. Because they don't pay tax. 
They don't pay tax, they don't report, even report nothing. Second, a lot of Iran's agricultural subsistence still reports nowhere. I would say 20-30% of Iran's foreign trade is underground. That is to say, the, the revolutionary foundations, ministries, the, uh, the average people, they, between, between Dubai and Tehran, probably there are $5 billion of underground trade from them, particularly of the American goods. I mean, you go to Tehran, everywhere you go, including in government offices, you have HPs all over, they pack Where that comes from? American commodities are all over the country. You go to the stores, everywhere you go, you have all the, all of this, uh, what you call it, the designer shops, the designer things, you know, from uh, Calvin Klein to, I don't know, whatever. That's number one. So there, there is this informal part of the economy that you have to consider. <coughs> Second, the biggest problem in the Iranian economy, aside from this informality, is mismanagement. It's tremendous mismanagement. Because the, the economy is also run on the basis of the political factionalism. Here is the principalist, here is the reformist, but I take over, I have my guys, and he has his guys, and therefore it is not based on you know, meritocracy. It is based on ideological affiliation. Ahmadinejad, when he came to power, threw away everybody that had learned anything about the economy and brought his own people who have absolutely had, had no idea what's going on. Because it is important to have a person that is of your idea that a person who is a technocrat who knows what to do. So mismanagement and informality are the two key problems of the Iranian economy. And I don't believe they could be easily resolved by privatization of that kind of stuff. Uh, I think Professor Amiradi ignored corruption here. Yeah. Mismanagement is part of the corruption. Mismanagement is the root of corruption, but corruption mm -hmm. is very serious in Europe, and we cannot ignore that. And corruption is coming from some foundation, like the foundation that he mentioned about that, because they don't care about the rule of law, and uh, they don't pay tax to the government, and uh, they don't give permission to the, even these representatives who are in parliament, they are not independent, but they don't give them permission to control uh, their records. And when Majesty uh, Shishun, six Majesty six parliament, they voted for that, uh, uh, I think Guardian Council vetoed that uh, point, that uh, uh, something that passed from the Majlis, and uh, then in some other institution, they said Majlis cannot control uh, economic institutions who are under control of Supreme Leader. So, if you uh, think we have to give these foundations, uh, you know, uh, positive roles for um, better situation economically in Iran, I don't know. We have uh, to say that they are working, you know, um, outside of the law, and they don't, uh, um, they they don't care about. Uh, the rules and regulations uh, about economic in Iran. 
even those regulations that we know that. Uh, and I, I like to hear your view about this this kind of you know, working of these foundations because they they are the root of corruption. Thank you. It is very true. Again, I, I don't mean to say that corruption doesn't exist, but I really put it under the mismanagement category that I think you are really right in explaining it. So I'd like to thank the panel very much uh, for a wonderful day. So we're going to take a 10 minute break. There's coffee and drinks in the back, and we'll come back here in 10 minutes.